0: Part Two of The Thing in the Attic by James Blish. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of The Thing in the Attic by James Blish. By nightfall they had ascended perhaps a hundred and fifty feet. It was difficult to judge distances in the twilight, and the token vine-bridges from the Attic World to the Pink Cliffs were now cut off from sight by the intervening masses of the cliffs themselves. But there was no possibility that they could climb higher today. Although Matilda had borne the climb surprisingly well, and Honath himself still felt almost fresh, Alaskan was completely winded. He had taken a bad cut on one hip from a serrated spike of volcanic glass against which he had stumbled. The wound bound with leaves to prevent its leaving a spore which might be followed evidently was becoming steadily more painful. Honath finally called a halt as soon as they reached the little ridge with the cave in back of it. Helping Alaskon over the last boulders, he was astonished to discover how hot the navigator's hands were. He took him back into the cave, and then came out onto the ledge again. He's really sick, he told Matilda in a low voice. He needs water and another dressing for that cut, and we've got to get both for him somehow. If we ever get to the jungle on the other side of the range, we'll need a navigator even worse than we need a needlesmith. But how? I could dress the cut if I had the materials, Honath, but there's no water up here. It's a desert. We'll never get across it. We've got to try. I can get him water, I think. There was a big cycladella on the slope we came up just before we passed that obsidian spur that hurt Alaskan. Gourds that size usually have a fair amount of water inside them and I can use a piece of the spur to rip it open. A small hand came out of the darkness and took him tightly by the elbow. Onath, you can't go back down there. Suppose the demon that that took Charles is still following us. They hunt at night, and this country is all so strange. I can find my way. I'll follow the sound of the stream of blue lava or whatever it is. You pull some fresh leaves for Alaskan and try to make him comfortable. Better loosen those vines around the dressing a little. I'll be back." He touched her hand and pried it loose gently. Then, without stopping to think about it any further, he slipped off the ledge and edged toward the sound of the stream, traveling crabwise on all fours. But he was swiftly lost. The night was thick and completely impenetrable, and he found that the noise of the stream seemed to come from all sides, providing him no guide at all. Furthermore, his memory of the ridge, which led up to the cave, appeared to be faulty, for he could feel it turning sharply to the right beneath him, though he remembered distinctly that it had been straight past the first side branch and then had gone to the left. Or had he passed the first side branch in the dark without seeing it? He probed the darkness cautiously with one hand. At the same instant a brisk staccato gust of wind came whirling up out of the night across the ridge. Instinctively, Honath shifted his weight to take up the flexing of the ground beneath him. He realized his error instantly and tried to arrest the complex set of motions, but a habit pattern so deeply ingrained could not be frustrated completely. Overwhelmed with vertigo, Honath grappled at the empty air with hands, feet, and tail, and went toppling. An instant later, with a familiar noise and an equally familiar cold shock that seemed to reach through his body, he was sitting in the midst of water. I see water, water that rushed by him improbably with a menacing monkey like chattering, but water all the same. It was all he could do to repress a hoot of hysteria. He hunkered down into the stream and soaked himself. Things nibbled delicately at his calves as he bathed. But he had no reason to fear fish, small species of which often showed up in the tanks of the bromeliads. After lowering his muzzle to the rushing invisible surface and drinking his fill, he dunked himself completely and then clambered out onto the banks, carefully neglecting to shake himself. Getting back to the ledge was much less difficult. "'Matilda?' he called in a hoarse whisper. "'Matilda, we've got water.' Come in here quick, then. Alaskon's worse. I'm afraid, Honath." Dripping, Honath felt his way into the cave. I don't have any container. I just got myself wet. You'll have to sit him up and let him lick my fur. I'm not sure he can. But Alaskon could, feebly, but sufficiently. Even the coldness of the water—a totally new experience for a man who had never drunk anything but the soup-warm contents of the bromeliads—seemed to help him. He lay back at last and said in a weak but otherwise normal voice, So, the stream was water after all. Yes, Honath said. And there are fish in it, too. Don't talk, Matilda said. Rest, Alaskan. I'm resting. Honath, if we stick to the course of the stream—where was I? Oh, we can follow the stream through the range now that we know it's water. How did you find that out?" I lost my balance and fell into it. Alaskan chuckled. "'Hell's not so bad, is it?' he said. Then he sighed, and the rushes creaked under him. "'Matilda, what's the matter? Is he—did he die?' No. No, he's breathing. He's still sicker than he realizes. That's all, Honath. If they'd known up above how much courage you have." I was scared white, Honath said grimly. I'm still scared. But her hand touched his again in the solid blackness, and after he had taken it he felt irrationally cheerful. With Alaskan breathing so raggedly behind them, there was little chance that either of them would be able to sleep that night. But they sat silently together on the hard stone in a kind of temporary peace. When the mouth of the cave began to outline itself with the first glow of the red sun, they looked at each other in a conspiracy of light all their own. Let us unlearn everything we knew only by rote. Go back to the beginning. Learn all over again and continue to learn. With the first light of the white sun a half-grown megatherium cub rose slowly from its crouch at the mouth of the cave and stretched luxuriously, showing a full set of saber-like teeth. It looked at them steadily for a moment, its ears alert, then turned and loped away down the slope. How long it had been crouched there listening to them it was impossible to know they had been lucky that they had stumbled into the lair of a youngster a full-grown animal would have killed them all within a few seconds after its cat's eyes had collected enough dawn to identify them positively the cub since it had no family of its own evidently had only been puzzled to find its den occupied and didn't want to quarrel about it the departure of the big cat left honath frozen not so much frightened as simply stunned by so unexpected an end to the vigil. At the first moan from Alaskan, however, Matilda was up and walking softly to the navigator, speaking in a low voice, sentences which made no particular sense and perhaps were not intended to. Honath stirred and followed her. Halfway back into the cave his foot struck something, and he looked down. It was the thigh-bone of some medium-large animal, imperfectly cleaned and not very recent. It looked like a keepsake the megatherium had hoped to save from the usurpers of its lair. Along a curved inner surface there was a patch of thick gray mold. Honath squatted and peeled it off carefully. "'Matilda, we can put this over the wound,' he said. "'Some molds help prevent wounds from festering. How is he?' better i think matilda murmured but he's still feverish i don't think we'll be able to move on today honath was unsure whether to be pleased or disturbed certainly he was far from anxious to leave the cave where they seemed at least to be reasonably comfortable possibly they would also be reasonably safe for the low roofed hole almost surely still smelt of megatherium and intruders would recognize the smell as the men from the attic world could not and keep their distance. They would have no way of knowing that the cat had only been a cub and that it had vacated the premises, though of course the odor would fade before long. Yet it was important to move on, to cross the Great Range if possible, and in the end to wind their way back to the world where they belonged, and to win vindication no matter how long it took. Even should it prove relatively easy to survive in Hell and there were few signs of that thus far. The only proper course was to fight until the attic world was totally regained. After all, it would have been the easy and the comfortable thing back there at the very beginning to have kept one's incipient heresies to oneself and remained on comfortable terms with one's neighbors. But Honath had spoken up, and so had the rest of them, in their fashions. It was the ancient internal battle between what Honath wanted to do and what he knew he ought to do. He had never heard of Kant and the categorical imperative, but he knew well enough which side of his nature would win in the long run. But it had been a cruel joke of heredity which had fastened a sense of duty onto a lazy nature. It made even small decisions egregiously painful. But for the moment, at least, the decision was out of his hands. Alaskan was too sick to be moved. In addition, the strong beams of sunlight which had been glaring in across the floor of the cave were dimming by the instant, and there was a distant premonitory growl of thunder. Then we'll stay here, he said. It's going to rain again, and hard this time. Once it's falling in earnest, I can go out and pick us some fruit. It'll screen me even if anything is prowling around in it and I won't have to go as far as the stream for water as long as the rain keeps up." The rain, as it turned out, kept up all day, in a growing downpour which completely curtained the mouth of the cave by early afternoon. The chattering of the nearby stream grew quickly to a roar. By evening, Alaskan's fever seemed to have dropped almost to normal, and his strength nearly returned as well. The wound, thanks more to the encrusted mat of mold than to any complications within the flesh itself, was still ugly-looking, but it was now painful only when the navigator moved carelessly, and Matilda was convinced that it was mending. Alaskan himself, having been deprived of activity all day, was unusually talkative. "'Has it occurred to either of you,' he said in the gathering gloom, that since that stream is water it can't possibly be coming from the Great Range. All the peaks over there are just cones of ashes and lava. We've seen young volcanoes in the process of building themselves, so we're sure of that. What's more, they're usually hot. I don't see how there could possibly be any source of water in the range, not even runoff from the rains." It can't just come up out of the ground, Honath said. It must be fed by rain. By the way, it sounds now it could even be the first part of a flood." "'As you say, it's probably rainwater,' Alaskan said cheerfully. "'But not off the Great Range. That's out of the question. Most likely it collects on the cliffs.' "'I hope you're wrong,' Honath said. The cliffs may be a little easier to climb from this side, but there's still the Cliff Tribe to think about.' "'Maybe, maybe. But the cliffs are big. The tribes on this side may never have heard of the war with our treetop folk. No, Honath, I think that's our only course. If it is, Honath said grimly, we're going to wish more than ever that we had some stout, sharp needles among us. Alaskan's judgment was quickly borne out. The three left the cave at dawn the next morning, Alaskan moving somewhat stiffly, but not otherwise noticeably incommoded, and resumed following the stream-bed upwards a stream now swollen by the rains to a roaring rapids. After winding its way upwards for about a mile in the general direction of the Great Range, the stream turned on itself and climbed rapidly back toward the basalt cliffs, falling toward the three, over successively steeper shelves of jutting rock. Then it turned again, at right angles, and the three found themselves at the exit of a dark gorge little more than thirty feet high, but both narrow and long. Here the stream was almost perfectly smooth, and the thin strip of land on each side of it was covered with low shrubs. They paused and looked dubiously into the canyon. It was singularly gloomy. There's plenty of cover, at least, Honath said in a low voice. But almost anything could live in a place like that. Nothing very big could hide in it. Alaskon pointed out. It should be safe. Anyhow, it's the only way to go. All right. Let's go ahead, then. But keep your head down and be ready to jump. Honath lost the other two by sight as soon as they crept into the dark shrubbery, but he could hear their cautious movements nearby. Nothing else in the gorge seemed to move at all, not even the water, which flowed without a ripple over an invisible bed. There was not even a wind for which Honath was grateful, although he had begun to develop an immunity to the motionless ground beneath them. After a few moments, Honath heard a low whistle. Creeping sidewise toward the source of the sound, he nearly bumped into Alaskan, who was crouched beneath a thickly spreading magnolia. An instant later, Matilda's face peered out of the dim greenery. "'Look,' Alaskan whispered. "'What do you make of this?' This was a hollow in the sandy soil about four feet across and rimmed with a low parapet of earth, evidently the same earth that had been scooped out of its center. Occupying most of it were three gray ellipsoidal objects, smooth and featureless. "'Eggs?' Matilda said wonderingly. "'Obviously. But look at the size of them. Whatever laid them must be gigantic.' I think we're trespassing in something's private valley." Matilda drew in her breath. Honath thought fast, as much to prevent panic in himself as in the girl. A sharp-edged stone lying nearby provided the answer. He seized it and struck. The outer surface of the egg was leathery rather than brittle. It tore raggedly. Deliberately Honath bent and put his mouth to the oozing surface. It was excellent. The flavor was decidedly stronger than that of birds' eggs, but he was far too hungry to be squeamish. After a moment's amazement, Alaskan and Matilda attacked the other two ovoids with a will. It was the first really satisfying meal they had had in Hell. When they finally moved away from the devastated nest, Honath felt better than he had since the day he was arrested. As they moved on down the gorge, they began again to hear the roar of water though the stream looked as placid as ever. Here, too, they saw the first sign of active life in the valley—a flight of giant dragonflies skimming over the water. The insects took fright as soon as Honath showed himself, but quickly came back, their merely non-existent brains already convinced that there had always been men in the valley. The roar got louder, very rapidly when the three rounded the long gentle turn which had cut off their view from the exit the source of the roar came into view it was a sheet of falling water as tall as the depth of the gorge itself which came arching out from between two pillars of basalt and fell to a roiling frothing pool this is as far as we go Alaskon said shouting to make himself heard over the tumult we'll never be able to get up these walls Stunned, Honath looked from side to side. What Alaskon had said was all too obviously true. The gorge evidently had begun life as a layer of soft, partly soluble stone in the cliffs, tilted upright by some volcanic upheaval and then worn completely away by the rushing stream. Both cliff faces were of the harder rock and were sheer and as smooth as if they had been polished by hand. Here and there a network of tough vines had begun to climb them, but nowhere did such a network even come close to reaching the top. Honath turned and looked once more at the great arc of water and spray. If there were only some way to prevent their being forced to retrace their steps. Abruptly over the riot of the falls there was a piercing, hissing shriek. Echoes picked it up and sounded it again and again all the way up the battlements of the cliffs. Honath sprang straight up in the air and came down trembling, facing away from the pool. At first he could see nothing. Then, down at the open end of the turn, there was a huge flurry of motion. A second later a two-legged, blue-green reptile, half as tall as the gorge itself, came around the turn in a single bound and lunged violently into the far wall of the valley it stopped as if momentarily stunned and the great grinning head turned toward them a face of sinister and furious idiocy the shriek set the air to boiling again balancing itself with its heavy tail the beast lowered its head and looked redly toward the falls the owner of the robbed nest had come home they had met a demon of hell at last Honath's mind at that instant went as white and blank as the underbark of a poplar. He acted without thinking, without even knowing what he did. When thought began to creep back into his head again, the three of them were standing shivering in semi-darkness, watching the blurred shadow of the demon lurching back and forth upon the screen of shining water. It had been nothing but luck—not foreplanning to find that there was a considerable space between the back of the falls proper and the blind wall of the canyon. It had been luck, too, which had forced Honath to skirt the pool in order to reach the falls at all, and thus had taken them all behind the silver curtain at the point where the weight of the falling water was too low to hammer them down for good and it had been the blindest stroke of all that the demon had charged after them directly into the pool where the deep boiling water had slowed its thrashing hind legs enough to halt it before it went under the falls as it had earlier blundered into the hard wall of the gorge not an iota of all this had been in honath's mind before he had discovered it to be true At the moment that the huge reptile had screamed for the second time, he had simply grasped Matilda's hand and broken for the falls, leaping from low tree to shrub to fern faster than he had ever leapt before. He did not stop to see how well Matilda was keeping up with him or whether or not Alaskan was following. He only ran. He might have screamed, too. He could not remember they stood now all three of them wet through behind the curtain until the shadow of the demon faded and vanished finally honath felt a hand thumping his shoulder and turned slowly speech was impossible here but Alaskon's pointing finger was eloquent enough along the back wall of the falls where centuries of erosion had failed to wear away completely the original soft limestone there was a sort of serrated chimney open toward the gorge, which looked as though it could be climbed. At the top of the falls, the water shot out from between the basalt pillars in a smooth, almost solid-looking tube, arching at least six feet before beginning to break into the fan of spray and rainbows which poured down into the gorge. Once the chimney had been climbed, it should be possible to climb out from under the falls without passing through the water again. And after that— Abruptly, Honath grinned. He felt weak all through with reaction, and the face of the demon would probably be grinning in his dreams for a long time to come. But at the same time he could not repress a surge of irrational confidence. He gestured upward jauntily, shook himself, and loped forward into the throat of the chimney. Hardly more than an hour later they were all standing on a ledge overlooking the gorge with the waterfall screaming over the brink next to them, only a few yards away. From here it was evident that the gorge itself was only the bottom of a far greater cleft, a split in the pink and gray cliffs as sharp as though it had been riven in the rock by a bolt of sheet-lightning. Beyond the basalt pillars from which the fall issued, however, the stream foamed over a long ladder of rock shelves which seemed to lead straight up into the sky. That way. Matilda said. Yes, and as fast as possible, Alaskan said, shading his eyes. It must be late. I don't think the light will last much longer. We'll have to go single file, Honath added, and we'd better keep hold of each other's hands. One slip on those wet steps and it's a long way down again. Matilda shuddered and took Honath's hand convulsively. To his astonishment, the next instant she was tugging him toward the basalt pillars. The irregular patch of deepening violet sky grew slowly as they climbed. They paused often, clinging to the jagged escarpments, until their breath came back and snatching icy water in cupped palms from the stream that fell down the ladder beside them. There was no way to tell how far up into the dusk the way had taken them, but Honath suspected that they were already somewhat above the level of their own vine-web world. The air smelled colder and sharper than it ever had above the jungle. The final cut in the cliffs through which the stream fell was another chimney. It was steeper and more smooth walled than the one which had taken them out of the gorge under the waterfall, but narrow enough to be climbed by bracing one's back against one side and one's hands and feet against the other. The column of air inside the chimney was filled with spray. but. In Hell, that was too minor a discomfort to bother about. At long last, Honath heaved himself over the edge of the chimney onto flat rock, drenched and exhausted, but filled with an elation he could not suppress and did not want to. They were above the Attic Jungle. They had beaten Hell itself. He looked around to make sure that Matilda was safe and then reached a hand down to Alaskan. The navigator's bad leg had been giving him trouble honath heaved mightily and Alaskon came heavily over the edge and lit sprawling on the high mesa the stars were out for a while they simply sat and gasped for breath then they turned one by one to see where they were there was not a great deal to see There was the mesa, domed with stars on all sides, and a shining, thin spindle, like a gigantic minnow, pointing skyward in the center of the rocky plateau. And around the spindle, indistinct in the starlight, around the shining minnow, tending it, were giants. This then was the end of the battle to do what was right, whatever the odds. All the show of courage against superstition. All the black battles against Hell itself came down to this. The giants were real. They were unarguably real. Though they were twice as tall as men, stood straighter, had broader shoulders, and were heavier across the seat and had no visible tails, their fellowship with men was clear. Even their voices as they shouted to each other around their towering metal minnow were the voices of men made into gods voices as remote from those of men as the voices of men were remote from those of monkeys, yet just as clearly of the same family. These were the giants of the Book of Laws. They were not only real, but they had come back to tell Laura as they had promised to do. And they would know what to do with unbelievers and with fugitives from Hell. It had all been for nothing. Not only the physical struggle, but the fight to be allowed to think for oneself as well. The gods existed. Literally. Actually." This belief was the real hell from which Honath had been trying to fight free all his life. But now it was no longer just a belief. It was a fact. A fact that he was seeing with his own eyes. The giants had returned to judge their handiwork. And the first of the people they would meet would be three outcasts, three condemned and degraded criminals, three jailbreakers the worst possible detrius of the Attic world. All this went searing through Honath's mind in less than a second. But, nevertheless, Alaskon's mind evidently had worked still faster. Always the most outspoken unbeliever of the entire little group of rebels, the one among them whose whole world was founded upon the existence of rational explanations for everything. His was the point of view most completely challenged by the sight before them now. With a deep, sharply indrawn breath, he turned abruptly and walked away from them. Matilda uttered a cry of protest, which she choked off in the middle, but it was already too late. A round eye on the great silver minnow came alight, bathing them all in an oval patch of brilliance. Honath darted after the navigator. Without looking back, Alaskan suddenly was running. For an instant longer, Honath saw his figure poised delicately against the black sky. Then he dropped silently out of sight, as suddenly and completely as if he had never been. Alaskan had borne every hardship and every terror of the ascent from Hell with courage and even with cheerfulness, but he had been unable to face being told that it had all been meaningless. Sick at heart, Honath turned back, shielding his eyes from the miraculous light. There was a clear call in some unknown language from near the spindle. Then there were footsteps, several pairs of them, coming closer. It was time for the second judgment. After a long moment, a big voice from the darkness said, Don't be afraid. We mean you no harm. We're men, just as you are. The language had the archaic flavor of the Book of Laws, but it was otherwise perfectly understandable. A second voice said, What are you called? Honath's tongue seemed to be stuck to the roof of his mouth. While he was struggling with it, Matilda's voice came clearly from beside him. He is Honath, the purse-maker, and I am Matilda, the forager. You are a long distance from the place we left your people, the first giant said. Don't you still live in the vine-webs above the jungles?" Lord, my name is Jarl Eleven. This man is Gerhardt Adler. This seemed to stop Matilda completely. Honath could understand why. The very notion of addressing giants by name was nearly paralyzing. But since they were already as good as cast down into Hell again, nothing could be lost by it. Jarl Eleven, he said. The people still live among the vines. The floor of the jungle is forbidden. Only criminals are sent there. We are criminals." Oh? Jarl Eleven said. And you've come all the way from the surface to this mesa? Gerhardt, this is prodigious. You have no idea what the surface of this planet is like. It's a place where evolution has never managed to leave the tooth-and-nail stage. Dinosaurs from every period of the Mesozoic primitive mammals all the way up the scale to the ancient cats, the works. That's why the original seeding team put these people in the treetops instead. "'Honath, what was your crime?' Gerhardt Adler said. Honath was almost relieved to have the questioning come so quickly to this point. Jarl, Eleven's aside, with its many terms he could not understand, had been frightening in its very meaninglessness. There were five of us. Honath said in a low voice. We said we—that we did not believe in the Giants. There was a brief silence. Then, shockingly, both Jarl Eleven and Gerhard Adler burst into enormous laughter. Matilda cowered, her hands over her ears. Even Honath flinched and took a step backward. Instantly the laughter stopped and the Giant called Jarl Eleven stepped into the Oval of Light and sat down beside them. In the light it could be seen that his face and hands were hairless. Although there was hair on his crown, the rest of his body was covered by a kind of cloth. Seated he was no taller than Honath and did not seem quite so fearsome. I beg your pardon, he said. It was unkind of us to laugh, but what you said was highly unexpected. Gerhardt, come over here and squat down so that you don't look so much like a statue of some general. Tell me, Honath. In what way did you not believe in the giants?" Hodath could hardly believe his ears. A giant had begged his pardon. Was this still some joke even more cruel? But whatever the reason, Jarl Eleven had asked him a question. Each of the five of us differed, he said. I held that you were not—not real except as symbols of some abstract truth. One of us, the wisest, believed that you did not exist in any sense at all. But we all agreed that you were not gods. And of course we aren't, Jarl Eleven said. We're men. We come from the same stock as you. We're not your rulers, but your brothers. Do you understand what I say? No, Honath admitted. Then let me tell you about it. There are men on many worlds, Honath. They differ from one another because the worlds differ, and different kinds of men are needed to people each one. Gerhardt and I are the kind of men who live on a world called Earth, and many other worlds like it. We are two very minor members of a huge project called a seeding program, which has been going on for thousands of years now. It's the job of the seeding program to survey newly discovered worlds and then to make men suitable to live on each new world." To make men? But only gods! No, no, be patient and listen," said Jarl Eleven. We don't make men. We make them suitable. There's a great deal of difference between the two. We take the living germ-plasm, the sperm and the egg, and we modify it. When the modified man emerges, we help him to settle down in his new world. That's what we did on Tellura. It happened long ago, before Gerhardt and I were even born. Now we've come back to see how you people are getting along, and to lend a hand if necessary. He looked from Honath to Matilda and back again. Do you understand? he said. I'm trying, Honath said, but you should go down to the jungle-top, then. We're not like the others. They are the people you want to see. We shall, in the morning. We just landed here. But just because you're not like the others, we're more interested in you now. Tell me, has any condemned man ever escaped from the jungle floor before you people? No, never. That's not surprising. There are monsters down there. Jarl Eleven looked sideways at the other giant. He seemed to be smiling. When you see the films, he remarked, you'll call that the understatement of the century. Honath, how did you three manage to escape, then? Haltingly at first, and then with more confidence as the memories came crowding vividly back, Honath told him. When he mentioned the feast at the demon's nest, Jarl Eleven again looked significantly at Adler, but he did not interrupt. And finally we got to the top of the chimney and came out on this flat space, Honath said. Alaskon was still with us then, but when he saw you and the metal thing, he threw himself back down the cleft. He was a criminal like us, but he should not have died. He was a brave man and a wise one. Not wise enough to wait until all the evidence was in, Adler said enigmatically. All in all, Jarl, I'd say prodigious is the word for it. This is easily the most successful seating job any team has ever done, at least in this limb of the galaxy. And what a stroke of luck to be on the spot just as it came to term, and with a couple at that." What does he mean? Honath said. Just this, Honath. When the seating team set your people up in business on Talora, they didn't mean for you to live forever in the treetops. They knew that sooner or later you'd have to come down to the ground and learn to fight this planet on its own terms. Otherwise, you'd go stale and die out." "'Live on the ground all the time,' Matilda said in a faint voice. "'Yes, Matilda. The life in the treetops was to have been only an interim period while you gathered knowledge you needed about Tellura and put it to use. But to be the real masters of the world you will have to conquer the surface, too.' The device your people worked out, that of sending criminals to the surface, was the best way of conquering the planet that they could have picked. It takes a strong will and courage to go against custom, and both those qualities are needed to lick Tellura. Your people exiled just such fighting spirits to the surface, year after year after year. Sooner or later, some of those exiles were going to discover how to live successfully on the ground and make it possible for the rest of your people to leave the trees. You and Honath have done just that. Observe, please, Jarl," Adler said. The crime in this first successful case was ideological. That was the crucial turn in the criminal policy of these people. A spirit of revolt is not quite enough, but couple it with brains and homo. Honath's head was swimming. "'But what does all this mean?' he said. "'Are we—' not condemned to Hell any more?" No, you're still condemned, if you still want to call it that, Jarl Eleven said soberly. You've learned how to live down there, and you've found out something even more valuable—how to stay alive while cutting down your enemies. Do you know that you killed three demons with your bare hands? You and Matilda and Alaskon. Killed? Certainly, Jarl Eleven said. You ate three eggs that is the classical way and indeed the only way to wipe out monsters like the dinosaurs you can't kill the adults with anything short of an anti-tank gun but they're helpless in embryo and the adults haven't the sense to guard their nests honath heard but only distantly even his awareness of matilda's warmth next to him did not seem to help much then we have to go back down there he said dully and this time forever yes Jarl Levin said, his voice gentle. But you won't be alone, Honath. Beginning tomorrow you'll have all your people with you. All our people? But you're going to drive them out? All of them. Oh, we won't prohibit the use of the vine-webs, too. But from now on your race will have to fight it out on the surface as well. You and Matilda have proven that it can be done. It's high time the rest of you learn, too. Yarl. You think too little of these young people themselves," Adler said. "'Tell them what is in store for them. They are frightened.' "'Of course, of course. It's obvious. Honath, you and Matilda are the only living individuals of your race who know how to survive down there on the surface. And we're not going to tell your people how to do that. We're not even going to drop them so much as a hint. That part is up to you.' Honath's jaw dropped. It's up to you," Jarl Levin repeated firmly. We'll return you to your tribe tomorrow, and we'll tell your people that you two know the rules for successful life on the ground, and that everyone else has to go down and live there, too. We'll tell them nothing else but that. What do you think they'll do then?" I don't know, Honath said dazedly. Anything could happen. They might even make us spokesman and spokeswoman, except that we're just common criminals uncommon pioneers, Honath. The man and the woman to lead the humanity of Talura out of the attic into the wide world. Jarl Eleven got to his feet, the great light playing over him. Looking up after him, Honath saw that there were at least a dozen other giants standing just outside the oval of light, listening intently to every word. But there's a little time to be passed before we begin, Jarl Eleven said. Perhaps you two would like to look over our ship. Humbly, but with a soundless emotion much like music inside him, Honath took Matilda's hand. Together they walked away from the chimney to hell, following the footsteps of the Giants. End of Part Two of The Thing in the Attic End of The Thing in the Attic by James Blish